This is Paige, the co-host of Giggly Squad, and I want to tell you about a company that I've been loving, Olive and June. Olive and June gives you everything that you need for a salon-quality manicure in one box. And if you break it down, it really comes out to $2 a manicure, which is absolutely insane. It's also so easy to get salon-worthy nails at home with Olive and June. The difference between how your nails used to look when you did them yourself and now with the Manny system is a complete game changer. The best thing about Olive and June, too, is it's a quick dry. Dries in about one minute, lasts for five days, and full coverage in up to one to two coats. Visit oliveandjune.com slash perfectmanny20 for 20% off your first system. That's oliveandjune.com slash perfectmanny20 for 20% off your first system. He kōna e pūrangi tēnei nā te reo irirangi o Aotearoa. Nā mihi nui and welcome to Our Changing World. Ko Alison Balance tēnei. Later on, we're catching up on a bit of seabird news and finding out about the chemical element gallium. But first, we're off to the Birds New Zealand Annual Conference, where the New Zealand Bird Atlas was launched at the weekend. To find out more, I stepped outside with Atlas organisers Mike Bell and Nikki MacArthur from Wildlife Management International. So Bird Atlas is a, is a very large-scale bird survey aimed at mapping the distribution or occupancy of birds across very large spatial areas. So they're often carried out at either national or in countries such as the United States, state-level scales. And it's basically a concerted effort um, by a very large number of observers, usually volunteer observers, to go out with a, and map the presence and absence of birds across an entire nation or a state of a nation over a set period of time. So in our case, the New Zealand Bird Atlas, it's going to be a five-year project, mapping the distribution of birds across the, the entire country, not just mainland New Zealand, but all of our outlying islands. So the, the Chatham Islands, Subantarctic Islands and the Kermadec Islands are all included. This is not the first Bird Atlas we've had? No, no, this is actually going to be the third Bird Atlas that Birds New Zealand has un- undertaken. The first one was back in the 70s, and then one started in 1990 to 2004, and then this one starting this year. So this is officially its first day today? Yes. Launch today. The New Zealand Bird <laughs> Atlas launched today at about 9.45am on the 1st of June. And it was launched here at the Birds New Zealand conference here in Wellington. And uh, the president of Birds New Zealand, Bruce McKinley, had the honour of submitting the first uh, bird checklist to the the New Zealand Bird Atlas. And uh, it's probably no great surprise here in downtown Wellington, but the, the very first bird to be entered into the Bird Atlas was a house sparrow. But equally important, this is a complete bird atlas of every species in New Zealand, so all of the introduced species and the more common native species are equally as important as the deep endemics and things like that. So, you know, we also want to map all of those because, in particular, you know, some of the changes that are happening in the landscape in New Zealand and things like that might possibly be better reflected in some of those more common species or even the introduced species, so they're important too. So you're going to cover towns, you're going to cover farms, you're going to cover backcountry forest? Absolutely. We're wanting every habitat in in New Zealand to get surveyed as part of this and knowing what species are are living in each of those habitats. So we're recording every species which is in one of these 10 kilometre squares that we've divided the whole country up into. So you divided the country up into 10 kilometre squares. How many squares have you got? Just over 3,200 of them. 
and each of them need to be completely surveyed once during each of the four seasons of the year. So we essentially have over 12,000 grid square surveys that we need to complete over the next five years. And if a square contains a variety of habitat, you need to be in each of those habitats as well? Yeah, that's right. So the, the challenge for our observers is they need to explore their grid square in whichever way they wish with the aim of trying to detect all of the bird species present in that square. So to do that, of course, you need to uh, visit the range of habitat types that different species occupy. So if there's a wetland in your square, you have to check the wetland for fern bird or bittern farmland. You'll pick up m- many exotic introduce passerines that, that live in farmland habitats. If there's native forest, that's where you're going to find things like keredu and, and tui and, and brown creeper if you're in the South Island. I think for a birder, it's you know really exciting. It gets you to go birding in places that often maybe you don't or you overlook and things like that. We're going to get out into some, into some different areas that we don't usually visit. So, so as a birder myself, I'm really excited about going into those places and, and having a look. So... So it's a little bit more detailed than we're standing here in Kilburnie and Wellington. Um, we're next to some karu and pohutakawa trees. We could hear some sparrows before. It's a bit more complicated than just going, oh, I think I just heard six sparrows. I'll just enter them in it. That's right. So one key aspect of the bird atlas is that we need to structure our bird observation data in a very specific way. So rather than just standing there and go, oh, I saw a sparrow, that, that's, that can go into the atlas, you also need to stop and record all of the birds you can see or hear around you, including that sparrow. So it's really, really crucial for producing really good, unbiased measures of bird distribution across New Zealand is that the the, the data is structured into these complete checklists. Probably the key explanation there is because when you submit a complete checklist and, and confirm that you have made an effort to record all of the bird species you encountered, you're also telling the atlas all of the bird species you didn't encounter as well. So as well as giving several sort of positive sightings, you're giving hundreds of negative sightings as well, which are equally as important. As we've been standing here already for the last five minutes maybe talking to you, I've already recorded five species of birds that I've been seeing just while, just while we've been doing this. So there was the sparrows that you were talking about there, and I've started on my phone. Um, there's an eBird app on your phone that you can do it. It's at your fingertips now, which is an online bird recording database run by Cornell University. So while we've been here, there's the sparrows that you were talking about that we heard. There's a starling just feed, feeding there. I've seen three blackback gulls flying past and then a small flock of feral pigeons as well. So there's four species already in five minutes in a car park in downtown Wellington. The New Zealand Bird Atlas is kind of the ultimate excuse for bird watchers to get out bird watching. You can't get a better excuse than this. And it's going to be a load of fun for, for many of our members and just get, get to go out and explore the countryside, go to a number of places you've probably never been before because you have to go and have a look in that habitat. It's just a, 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 the green light to, to go birding. But behind all that, there's a really, really serious intent behind the Atlas. So many New Zealanders do know that many of our native birds are threatened and are declining. Um, but it was actually the first two Atlas projects that really threw that into really stark sort of relief recently. So one thing we've learnt from the two first Atlas projects that Bird New Zealand have run uh, is that we are losing many of our endemic forest bird species and endemic inland breeding wader species across the country. They're just, they're just retreating from many of the habitats in which they've been formerly found and are now kind of retreating into the very, the very high country forests and the, the very remote sort of back country. 
in order to turn that around, we need to have a really detailed understanding of just where those those birds are retreating, where they're under the most pressure. And it's only a very large national-scale data set collected by thousands of observers that is, that is going to give us that picture. So, in short, the New Zealand bird Alice, it's key scientific aim is to create a data set that can be used to inform conservation decision making in New Zealand across the country not only at national scales but at regional and local scales for the next few decades so as well as a great deal of fun for our for our volunteers and a great excuse to get out birding our members are saving the world at the same time I think for people like me and Nikki, you know, we're real data junkies and a digital atlas like this is going to give us the ability in real time to track the progress of it. One, the survey effort, what squares have been done, what haven't been done, we'll better use that to inform our own birding to go somewhere that haven't been done and in real time we'll see species distribution maps of our favourite birds being built in front of us and today's technology has allowed us to be able to do that whereas in previous atlases we filled in paper sheets, sent them in and Often for years we didn't hear back or have a glimpse of how that data was looking. Every hour we're going to be able to get updates and see what's happening and things like that. And I, I think for the participants out there, you know, that's going to be a real great experience of this whole project that, that they're going to have by being able to do it in this digital format. It's going to make it a real social kind of a project compared to our previous atlases. Is it just for members of Birds NZ to do? Oh, no, absolutely not. This project is, is open to anybody who, who's got an interest in, in nature. You do have to have a certain level of skill to be able to identify the species, but loads of people can identify all the bird species in New Zealand. So we've developed a, a website, got a whole bunch of resources for anybody who is outside of the society and might not understand what atlasing is and what it means. The New Zealand Bird Atlas website is simply www.birdatlas.co.nz so nice and simple and the the website where we're entering our data the database where, which will hold the atlas data is um, ebird.org slash atlasnz So I've got a new verb in my vocabulary it's time to get atlasing Let's get atlasing, it's a new verb that's just been created today <laughs> Thanks Mike that was Mike Bell and Nikki MacArthur from Wildlife Management International. And if you'd like to do some atlasing and count birds for the New Zealand Bird Atlas, you'll find links to the website and the eBird app on our webpage, rnz.co.nz slash Our Changing World. Now, amongst the presentations at the 2019 Birds New Zealand Conference were several updates on seabird stories that I have covered here on Our Changing World. Back in 2012, I headed out to Machu Soames Island in Wellington Harbour to find out about a fluttering shearwater translocation project. The shearwaters used to breed on the island back before it was turned into an animal quarantine station. The island is now a rat-free reserve covered in regenerating forest, and ornithologist Shane Cotter decided it was about time it became home to a seabird colony again. Shane and some keen volunteers installed a sound system to broadcast fluttering shearwater calls to passing adult birds. They created some desirable real estate in the form of artificial nest burrows. And they got the colony off to a flying start by translocating 80 chicks from Long Island in the Marlborough Sounds. In the absence of their parents, the chicks had to be fed for several weeks until they fledged. I called in at lunchtime to meet Shane and the birds and see what was on the menu. At the feeding shed here we first of all weigh the birds. So this one weighs 354 grams. Record that. 
So this bird's gained 12 grams and it's going to be fed 70 mils of sardine smoothie. So what's in a sardine smoothie? <laughs> so in the morning before we start, um, from 6.30 in the morning, uh, a number of bottles of sardines are made up. They're Brunswick sardines in soy oil with cooled boiled water uh, and some vitamins added to it. And it takes about two hours to make up enough food for the 80 shearwaters that we're feeding here. When they first arrive, they'd be fed uh, about 40 mils of sardine smoothie. Now we've been here about eight days, they're up to about 70 grams of sardine smoothie. And that allows them to put on about uh, five to 10 grams each day. Which is what they'd be doing in the wild if they're being fed by their parents? Yes, it would be. So one very full wee shearwater? Oh no, a bit more. <laughs> yeah, we divide up the feed into a couple of syringes just to give the bird a bit of a rest between so it can settle the food in its stomach because obviously it's getting the food a lot quicker doing it this method than what the adult would be feeding it. This bird is um, particularly vocal which is good it means that the feeding is not obstructing its airways in any way because you can hear it making noises which is fantastic. Each chick has a different personality. Some are noisy like this guy, some others are, are very quiet, some are aggressive, some are very uh, docile. So it's had its feed, it goes back into its box, and we return it to its burrow. That was year one of a project to set up a fluttering shearwater breeding colony on Machu Soames. It's been five years since the project finished, so has it been successful? We transferred birds in for three years. We transferred 237 in total, of which 63 of those have returned to Machu Soames and have started breeding. Fantastic. So let's dive into that a little bit more. The chicks fledged from Machu Soames. What happened to them? We had a couple of birds that turned up dead in Bass Strait in Australia, just outside Melbourne. One 23 days after it was last seen on Machu Soames and one nine months after it was last seen on Machu Soames. So it appears its first flight, it goes towards Bass Strait. And how soon after they left Machu Soames, how soon were they coming back to the island? Our first bird to return was nearly three years old. Two years, ten months, thirty days since it fledged. So it appears about three years they returned to the island. They first started breeding when they were four years old. Great, and you're getting birds that are still turning up that you haven't seen previously? Yes, we are. We thought they would continue coming back for about eight years, but a bird on Mana Island, which was a similar project, uh, was 11 years afterwards. So birds will still continue to come back for about another six years. You've still got a sound system playing out there, so just tell me how that works. So it's a solar-powered sound system. So it plays fluttering shearwater calls, from dusk through until dawn. And so that's, in a sense, luring the birds to come back into the colony? Yes, as well as attracting any other birds that 
weren't transferred there, attracting other birds from Wellington Harbour to that site. Is that working? Are you getting birds other than the ones you translocated to the island? Yes, we have. We've got another 21 birds that we didn't transfer, but they've been attracted in by the sound system. So tell me what you do now. You, you go out to the island quite regularly, don't you, to check up on them? Yes, once a month, do an overnight visit. Generally they like lots of rain, lots of wind and no moon. So bad conditions for humans, perfect conditions for birds to come to the island. What's the most you've seen on one night while you've been out there? Just over 50 birds in one night. Is that exciting? Are you feeling like you, you've got quite a, a good little colony going on there now? And it's expanding all the time. So a few years ago, eight birds in a night was successful, then it went to 20, now it's over 40 birds a night, and that's a regular event. So it's still increasing, Um, so very excited by the prospects of what's going to happen there over the next years to come. So what's the best number of chicks you've produced so far? So this year was our best year, 14 chicks, up from nine last year, which was up from three the year before. So again, a great increase in in chicks that have been uh, hatched there and fledged. Have you had equal numbers of males and females coming back from the birds that you translocated there? No, that's one of the interesting things that we've found. There's more males that have come back to the colony than females, and the birds that have been attracted in that weren't transferred chicks, 21 of those, 20 of those are females. So it appears females search for new locations to breed, while males seem to return to where they were fledged from. Did that mean you had a whole lot of girls at the beginning? Absolutely. What we had was a disproportionate population of females and only one male. So there were a number of female-female pairs, and one of those female-female pairs is still in existence today, six years after they paired up. They lay eggs, but those eggs obviously aren't fertile. Are you getting any other seabirds coming in? Yes, we've also had diving petrels, smaller bird that used to breed on the island as well in pre-European times. Six individuals have been caught and banded there, uh, and two of those have taken up residence in one of the burrows. Fingers crossed they may lay eggs this year and fledge chicks. It's really moving towards that vision that you had at the beginning of turning Machusomes back into being a seabird island. Absolutely. Not only the burrows being used by seabirds, but also by a number of other animals. Tuatara have taken over uh, and been seen in some of those burrows. Giant wetters... Kakariki have also bred in these burrows, so we're getting a number of other animals also using them, which is exciting. It's quite a burgeoning ecosystem you've got going on there. Absolutely, that was one of the basis for this translocation, that seabirds are a keystone species of ecosystems. The birds will poo, they'll regurgitate, some of the eggs won't hatch uh, and put more nutrients into the soil when they break open. It increases the insect life, increases lizards, geckos, tuatara and other animals to the site. Thanks Shane. That was ornithologist Shane Cotter on the very successful fluttering shearwater translocation to Machusomes Island. Now for some more bird news. In late 2017, I joined Thomas Mattern from the Tawaki Project in Milford Sound, where he has been working with Tawaki, or Fiordland crested penguins. These rare, secretive birds nest under large rocks in the forest, which makes them very hard to find. Here we are in 2017, on the hunt. Oh, that's quite a tight fit. 
You can't see the birds. They're no. somewhere in there. So there's a penguin in there, but it's way back, huh? Yeah, way back and well out of our reach. Yeah, that's what makes it really tricky to work with these uh, with these penguins because they're so inaccessible, so secretive. Nothing like uh, emperor penguins or king penguins or any of these large colony birds that, that hang out in the open in their thousands. This penguin keeps to itself. It's the most difficult of all penguins to research. Difficult habitat, challenging, move around, nest out of sight... Thanks, Kerry-Jane. That was Kerry-Jane Wilson from the West Coast Penguin Trust, and we also heard from Thomas Mattern at the University of Otago and the Tawiki Project. So, that was a year and a half ago, and the reason they were looking for the elusive penguins was to retrieve GLS or Geolocator System tracking devices to find out where the penguins were feeding while they fed their chicks. The answer for the well-fed Milford soundbirds was that they travelled very few kilometres to find their food. They stayed mostly inside the fjord. Next, Thomas wanted to find out where the Tawiki went in the non-breeding season, and that has turned out to be a remarkable story. We were quite interested what they do once the chicks have fledged because they disappear from the fjords and nobody knows uh, where they go. A lot of the tour boats, they, they just claim that the penguins all migrate to Antarctica and we knew that was very unlikely. So we stuck some satellite transmitters on birds after they had finished breeding and we found that the penguins travelled tremendous distances, even though they just had a few weeks uh, in preparation for the annual mold where they have to be back at their, their breeding colonies. They travelled past the Auckland Island, past Macquarie, down to the heart of the sub-Antarctic, halfway to Antarctica at least, and all that within a time of eight to ten weeks or so. Um, so they practically ran a marathon when they really their main goal was to gain weight. So how far was this journey there and back? Some individuals covered nearly 7,000 kilometres in, in nine weeks. So they travelled about 1,000 k's per week, which is, yeah, wow. <laughs> and what was the area they were travelling to? The core of the sub-Antarctic. So they, they, they were nearing the polar front, which is that frontal region where, where the circumpolar current that, that runs around Antarctica uh, borders on a bit warmer water in the sub-Antarctic. So a huge distance. It's the longest distance uh, that any penguin we know covers at that stage of their life history. So they go on this enormous marathon, then they come back to Fjordland? Yes, which is puzzling. I mean, there are quite a, a few nice islands on the way, like Macquarie and the Antipodes, where they could go to Malt, but no, they travel all the way back to the mainland to their breeding sites to, to shed their feathers there. So penguins have these catastrophic molts. They have to stay ashore where they lose all their feathers, which is a lot of feathers, isn't At it? At once, yes. Looks like a firecracker experiment with a pillow gone wrong. It looks pretty funny, actually. How long does it take them to molt? Three to four weeks, and they lose more than half of their body weight during that period. So it is really, really crucial for them that they arrive in tip-top shape back. And, I mean, that's the thing. If you need to be as fat as possible to, to survive not only three and a half weeks of starvation, but also uh, growing 150,000 new feathers, um, you have to be as fat as possible. And, yeah, running a marathon to do that just seems counterintuitive, doesn't it? <laughs> 
So they finish molting. They've now lost a huge amount of weight again, but it's a few more weeks before it's time to think about breeding again. So then what do they do? Well, once once they're they're through with the molt, they they do pretty much the same. They visit the same the same region. They go down south again, travel a bit further. More importantly, um, they take their time. They aren't as fast, but they go to the same general area down in the in the subantarctic, and that is something that that we weren't aware of. Fjordland penguins are usually considered birds of the temperate zone, like yellow-eyed penguins and little blue penguins, but they're crested penguins, and um, all other crested penguin species live and breed in the subantarctic region. So it is really a return to their ancestral homes outside of the breeding season. So it's not that they're going down for really rich food pickings, you don't think? I assume there's some really good food down there, but the paradoxical thing about it is there's even more and even probably even better food around the New Zealand mainland, so they wouldn't have to go all this this distance. Unless there's some, some unknown superfood down there that makes their trip worthwhile, they leave when the primary productivity around the New Zealand mainland is at its peak, when many other seabird species start breeding, like yellow-eyed penguins, little blue penguins, they all are at, at, the, at the peak of their breeding when Tawaki go on these tremendous journeys, so they, they don't really have to do that to find food, yet they still do it. So we think that it's just, you know, hardwired in their brain to go down to the subantarctic region because, yeah, that's where they come from. Thanks, Thomas. That was Thomas Mattern from the University of Otago and the Tawaki Project. And the returning penguins, by the way, are still travelling and transmitting data. Kei te whakaronga mai koe ki tō tātou au horihori, hei hōtaka e pānaki a papatuanuku, tangaroa, meirangi nui. I'm Alison Balance and you're with Our Changing World on RNZ. Finally, on the show tonight, I thought we'd round out all the bird news with some chemistry. The Elemental podcast is up to the letter G in its alphabetical celebration of the 150th birthday of the periodic table. Here's Professor Alan Blackman from the Auckland University of Technology to tell us all about gallium, which he tells me is the mysterious case of the disappearing spoon. Indeed, and we will get to that, but cast your mind back to start with to episode 28, Francium, and uh, we mentioned gallium during that episode as well. And as we said then, gallium is the second element which is named after France from Gallia, the Latin name for France. So, vital statistics for this element. Gallium, chemical symbol GA, atomic number 31, puts it sort of in the middle-ish, a little bit to the right of the periodic table, and discovered in 1875 by, guess who? (laughs) It's Paul-Emile Lecoq de Bois-Baudron again, and I can't believe that this guy is not on the periodic table. Neither can I. He pops up in this podcast series all the time. I know. And, um, yeah, before I started doing research on this, I have to admit I'd never heard of him, but he seemed to have done a lot, so put him on the periodic table, I think. Certainly played a huge role in the development of it, hasn't he? No, absolutely. And this, in fact, was a very, very important element, gallium, in terms of Mendeleev's periodic table, because if you think back right to the start of this podcast, the preface episode... What we found was that Mendeleev had left gaps in his periodic table. He was so certain that he was right that he would leave gaps where he knew that elements that hadn't yet been discovered must be. So one of these elements he called Ica aluminium, meaning there was an element that was directly below aluminium on the periodic table and directly above indium. 
And so this new element would be in group 13 of the periodic table. And in fact, the element that he called Ica aluminium was in fact gallium. And this was found six years after Mendeleev's periodic table. So Mendeleev was pretty chuffed about this, I guess, because one of the great things in science is when you come up with a theory, if it has predicative power, then it's a damn good theory. And this periodic table was a damn good theory. So what happened was that Boisbrodron had uh, reported his discovery of gallium. And Mendeleev wrote to Boisbrodron after seeing uh, this in the literature And he asked him to check his reported density of the new metal because the Frenchman said it was about 4.5 grams per mil and Mendeleev reckoned that it should be about 6 grams per mil. So Boisbaudron consequently redid his experiment, remeasured the density and surprise, surprise, found that Mendeleev was correct. So pretty cool. That Mendeleev sure was a genius. (laughs) Now this gallium, where does it come from? Well, because gallium is in group 13 along with aluminium, then it tends to uh, be found in the same sort of places that aluminium is found and indeed in bauxite deposits. So that's where we get the majority of aluminium from. And gallium coexists, I guess, in those bauxite deposits. So that's not really surprising that you find them together. And in terms of use, the major use of gallium is in semiconductors and generally as a material called gallium arsenide. And around about 95% of all gallium produced is converted to gallium arsenide. And this is used in high-speed logic chips and also in mobile phones and the pre-amplifiers in mobile phones. So every cell phone contains power amplifiers that uh, enable the handset to transmit voice and data back to the base station tower, and then that routes the call to another phone number or an internet address. And so these power amplifiers are the most critical radio frequency component of the phone, and they have historically been dominated by circuits made with this gallium arsenide, the semiconductor. But as we move on, we're finding that silicon chips uh, are much cheaper and they are becoming more widespread, even though the gallium arsenide chips are much, much faster. Maybe it depends how flash your phone is. (laughs) Yes, very probably. I wouldn't mind betting. Gallium arsenide is one of uh, a few sort of gallium-based semiconductors. So we've got gallium nitride and indium gallium nitride, and they're used in LEDs. They give you blue and violet LEDs, and these light-emitting materials are also used in um, Blu-ray players. So I might have it in my mobile phone. I do have a Blu-ray disc player at home, so I've definitely got it there. Indeed you do, yes, yes. Now tell me, what's the story with the disappearing spoons? Well, we haven't mentioned this yet, but gallium is in fact a metal, and at room temperature it's quite soft. It looks like silver, lovely soft silvery metal, but you hold it in your hand and it will melt, because gallium melts at around about 30 degrees Celsius. And quite remarkably... Uh, it stays liquid for another 2,373 degrees Celsius before it boils. And this gives it the largest liquid range of any element on the periodic table. That's outrageous. That's amazing. <laughs> it is. It's quite quite remarkable, that. Uh, chemically, this is all due to the fact that gallium is smaller than it should be because of poorly shielding D-electrons. But if you want to know more about that, come along to my first-year lectures. And as for the disappearing spoon, um, this used to be an old trick of scientists back in the day. They would uh, fashion a spoon out of gallium. It would look like just a normal silver spoon. Somebody would stir their tea with it, and then, of course, the spoon would then disappear. (laughs) Oh, 
<laughs> I bet that got a laugh every time. I'm sure. <laughs> hey, interesting fact, please. I, li- I do like the spoon one, but I'm sure there must be more. <laughs> so gallium is very unusual amongst elements and, in fact, compounds in the fact that it shrinks by 3% when it melts. So that makes it very, very unusual. Not many elements or, in fact, compounds do that. Or to put that in a way which makes more sense to me, it expands when it solidifies, doesn't it? So like water expanding when it turns to ice. Indeed, and water is very rare in that respect, yes. Thanks, Alan. That was Alan Blackman from the Auckland University of Technology, and you can hear more chemistry with Alan in the Elemental podcast, which has also covered germanium and gold in recent episodes. You can listen to all of tonight's stories again, as well as the earlier stories on fluttering shearwaters and tawiki on the Our Changing World webpage, rnz.co.nz slash ourchangingworld. Stay in touch with us. We're on Twitter and Facebook as RNZ Science. Many thanks for your company. Until next time, it's good night from me, Alison Balance, Paul Marier. Botox Cosmetic, out of botulinum toxin A, FDA approved for over 20 years. So, talk to your specialist to see if Botox Cosmetic is right for you. For full prescribing information, including boxed warning, visit BotoxCosmetic.com or call 877-351-0300. Remember to ask for Botox Cosmetic by name. To see for yourself and learn more, visit BotoxCosmetic.com. That's BotoxCosmetic.com.